0: Welcome to the Earth Keepers Podcast. This podcast is for people who seek new and better ways to love and care for the Earth. It's a podcast for anyone who is deeply concerned about the harm being done to the environment on a local and global level. It's a podcast that builds community and connection between people of like heart and mind, people who believe that Earth Care should be integrated into every aspect of life, and for many in the Earth Keepers community, that includes our spiritual lives. In this episode, I'll be in conversation with Timothy Beale about his new book, called When Time is Short, Finding Our Way in the Anthropocene. This book is unlike most books in the realm of environmental issues or earth care, because it challenges readers to truly engage the possibility that irreversible climate damage to the planet is already upon us, and only going to get worse, and that those changes might even lead to the end of the human species. His book provokes readers to have the courage to acknowledge that possibility and to ask, how ought we to live our lives now in light of that possible future?
1: This is a book about our denial of death as a species, our denial of the possibility of extinction, how religion has contributed to that denial, and really, really importantly for me, how religion can be a resource for us to break through that denial and to find meaningful hope and purpose in the face of a finite human future.
0: Welcome, friends, to the Earth Keepers podcast. Well, welcome, Tim, to the podcast. Thanks for spending some of your vacation time with us to talk about your new book. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about yourself and the things you're invested in these days.
1: Sure, thank you, Forrest. I'm really glad to have this conversation. I am a professor of religious studies at a big STEM oriented university in Ohio, but I teach in a small department of religious studies there. I also direct something called H Lab, which is about empowering humanities students and scholars to play with and experiment with new computational tools and methods in order to see what kinds of new research and learning questions might emerge in that process. I teach courses in religion and ecology. I teach courses related to H Lab around learning to code and program. And my background as a scholar is in Hebrew Bible, Old Testament. So I'm a biblical scholar, very interested in the ways that biblical texts and traditions interact in our contemporary media culture and the ways that they might be rediscovered in relation to the kinds of questions I think we'll be talking about today.
0: So your new book called When Time is Short, Finding Our Way in the Anthropocene, you maybe could unpack that title for us, especially for those listeners who may not understand what Anthropocene means.
1: Sure. Yeah, we we made a gamble on that on including the word Anthropocene in the title. And the gamble was that by now, it would be a popular word. I think it's going to be like maybe the word of the year in 2023. And it is becoming more familiar, but still a lot of folks haven't heard it or haven't quite developed a simple definition of it. But the Anthropocene is the new geological era that we are in following the Holocene, most think it started around the middle of the 20th century with the atomic bomb and with the great acceleration of populations and all of these other kinds of things but it refers to that new geological era in which human caused changes to the environment are the dominant kinds of changes that what we call anthropogenic that is human caused human originating behaviors are the main Drivers of change on our planet. So that's what Anthropocene means. So, finding our way in the Anthropocene is about trying to find hope and meaning in honestly what might be a finite future for us as a species, as we have already begun to change the environment in ways that we will not be able to completely reverse. We can't find our way out of the Anthropocene, we're in it and it's probably going to outlast us as a species. So my three floor elevator speech would be that this is a book about our denial of death as a species, our denial of the possibility of extinction, how religion has contributed to that denial and really, really importantly for me, how religion can be a resource for us to break through that denial and to find meaningful hope and purpose in the face of a finite human future. So that's the three-floor elevator speech. This two-floor one is, this is not another before it's too late book. This is a what if it's already too late book. Can we have that conversation? And then the one floor elevator speech is that it's a book about what I would call a palliative approach to the human future.
0: Many readers of environmental literature are looking for action plans, hope Mm -hmm. that somehow we can stave off climate change, we can learn to fight against environmental exploitation. And I'll admit that in fact, that action-oriented optimism is really characteristic of this podcast, for better or for worse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that many of our listeners might be taken aback by the fact that your main argument is not mainly that we ought to be living greener lives, although that's part of it, but rather Mm -hmm. you make the case for accepting the inevitable demise of the human species, as you say. Is that accurate, that assessment?
1: In a way, yes. I don't use that word demise, and I don't think it's inevitable. I hope it's not. And I'm doing everything I can and want to call on others to do everything they can for it not to be. But I'm not a doomer, as people say these days. That term has come to represent a certain sort of attitude that says it's too late. And so really, we might as well just not even try. That is not me at all. Quite the opposite. I am an activist myself. I am a very hopeful person. I am not saying that we stop the work by any means. I think it's what we need to be doing. I think there really is crucial work to be done, and it's not about accepting in that way. But what I want to do in this book and in my life is to open space for conversation about what if the work we're doing is not forever? What then? what really matters when time is short, if time is becoming short. And that's where the analogy to the palliative care comes into play. One of the things that we talk about in palliative care with an individual who is looking at maybe five years, maybe 10 years, maybe five months, maybe five days, whatever, is to face the reality that has to be faced and to accept the suffering that cannot be avoided. But at the same time, to alleviate and reduce the suffering that can be avoided, to reduce unnecessary suffering. And I think that's a big part of our activism that we need to be doing. There already is harm and there already will be harm as a result of things that are happening right now today in terms of our environmental policies and practices and practices of extraction all of the injustices that are being generated by our practices. And part of what we need to be doing as environmental activists is to be working on alleviating the suffering that's already happening and already being caused by our actions. And I think sometimes when you think about that palliative analogy, again, you could opt for the really expensive surgery that is going to break the healthcare system, break your family make you sick and unhappy and give you a five percent chance or a two percent chance to live another few months. Or you could focus on alleviating the suffering and and focusing on the, the quality of life now. And I think some of our environmental policies and actions are so expensive and have such a slim possibility of making much of a difference. And yet we are ignoring so much suffering on the environmental justice side that really needs to be a focus. And one thing I noticed with the youngest generation of climate activists and environmental activists, Gen Z, is that many of them do focus on the social justice dimensions of our climate crisis. What already is happening and needs to be addressed. And sometimes our addiction to perpetuity, our need for hope to be forever is blinding us to that kind of harm here and now that we could be working on. So for me, I think real hope versus optimism, and we can talk about the difference between hope and optimism in my mind, but real hope has to move through facing the reality of the bed we have made for ourselves and grieving that. I don't think that there is real deep hope without grief. We need to move through grief and not skip it to optimism.
0: I think one of my takeaways from your book is this idea that unless we are facing squarely the reality of possible extinction of human species, that in some ways, our actions, the way we live our life is going to be somewhat disconnected from those realities. Right. And just as an exercise, I found myself, every time I picked up your book, I was pushing myself up against that possibility. I just had to like imagine, what if the generations that are living today are the last generations. And I likened the feeling to that feeling of, I'm a little bit afraid of heights, and so sometimes mm. I dare myself <laughs> to walk to the edge of a tall building or of a cliff and look down in that feeling of breathlessness. <laughs> but <laughs> there's something important about facing that, and that's what <laughs> it felt like to me. I think there's so much in me, maybe in many people that doesn't want to look at that possibility, and yet, that's the truth that is probably inevitably going to shape our actions and and what we actually do in terms of working for the earth and even our activism, I suppose.
1: I love that analogy to that experience of vertigo being on the cliff or looking over the edge of the boat into the deep. And vertigo is that experience of being drawn over and in on the one hand and pulling yourself back from the edge at the same time. It's a very ambivalent, pushing in two directions at once, kind of conflicted feeling. And I think that there's something to that experience of vertigo that speaks to our deep individual human desire to lose ourselves in something bigger. Part of what's over that cliff or in that deep sea is the kind of mystery of the universe, if you will, of the everything that we are part of. And I think part of what we're processing in that is protecting our individual selves and at the same time being drawn into connection with everything. In religious studies terms, we would call that ego annihilation, losing the self into something bigger. And Forrest, I think that's an experience that many of us have when we are trying to reconnect with our environment and with the rest of the natural world. The forest can evoke that same kind of vertigo, but there's something about the work that we need to be doing that's very simply about remembering our unexceptional place as humans within this world. And there's a kind of mysticism to that. There's a kind of losing oneself in that larger everything that is powerful and that i think can motivate our activism and can generate our hope and maybe make us a little less afraid of imagining that humans aren't going to go on forever or aren't going to outlast the planet in traditional christian sorts of language where the planet is almost like this stage where we're going to play out our human drama before we go back to be with god again yeah
0: This brings us actually to one of the core arguments of your book about disconnection, about dismemberment versus remembering. And you make the argument that human beings really in a lot of ways have been the agents of their own destruction because of that disconnection, because of the way that many of us have come to understand our position really against creation, our position over creation. Could you at least give us a sense of what you mean by that disconnection, even though it's quite a big concept? Give us a short version of what that means, and maybe even how this has come to dominate so many of our worldviews, especially in the West.
1: You're absolutely right that there is a lot to that in the book, and I spend a lot of time unpacking that because I think it's so central to our denial. To the denial that has gotten us to this place. And I do hope people will read and talk about where I go there. My shortest summary of that would be that we have, especially in the modern West, been driven by faith in what I call human exceptionalism. And exceptionalism is a way of thinking about disconnection because it's this idea that we as humans are accepted from the rules of nature that all other living and non-living beings are subjected to, and that we are exceptional to the rest of creation. That goes back to a certain reading of just a few verses, barely a few verses in the Old Testament in the Bible, around that first creation story in Genesis 1, where God says to the humans after creating the humans on the sixth day in God's image, to go and subdue and have dominion and rule over the other creatures is what the biblical text says. But we've read that in the modern West as our charter of foundation for basically going and using maximally the rest of creation as our bounty and resource as the godlike rulers of the planet. So it has its roots in that biblical interpretation. And I spend some time unpacking how that unfolds into modern Western capitalism and global capitalism. But that's the kind of core of it. What I really want to emphasize, though, is that there's more to the book than that. And what's really important to me is to go back and revisit some of those traditions and others in order to find religious resources for developing the antithesis of that disconnection and that exceptionalism, human unexceptionalism, if you will. And I call that in the book earth creatureliness, and it really is characterized by an understanding of human being in terms of interdependence and interconnection with the rest of creation notions of human animal reciprocity are important in this and i find this in the bible i find this in biblical traditions i think that these biblical traditions that they represent traces of indigenous religious culture that are there in the hebrew bible sometimes just barely traces of those that we have to tease back out but we can pull those resources out and reflect on them and put them into conversation with other indigenous religious perspectives and i think find some really fruitful resources and some powerful inspiration for those of us who are religious just one example of this kind of earth creatureliness is i offer a rereading and i'll just very briefly summarize it here but a rereading of genesis 2 there are two creation stories in the first two chapters of genesis genesis 1 the six days and on the seventh day god rested creation story and then the next in genesis 2 where God basically forms this human, not male or female yet, maybe both, it's not exactly clear, but forms the human from the mud, from the humus, and our word human and our word humus are related, also related to humble, by the way, but in Hebrew, forms the ha'adam, the human from the ha'adamah, the earth, and so this is a kind of earth creature, and then God breathes into this human-shaped lump of dirt, the breath of life, and it is animated into a living being. And so if you think about what it means to be human in that story, it's to be from the earth and returning to the earth and to be animated, to be inspirited, God-breathed dirt in some sense. And God creates all of the other animals the same way in that story. And so just a very different perspective on what it means to be human right there. It's close in many ways to other indigenous religious stories of the beginnings of the human. And I think there's just so much there that is worth our attention and reflection.
0: And yet somehow we have gotten onto this track of a certain interpretation of a certain set of passages that have, for better or for worse, set our course, our course toward destruction, our course toward this modality of earth dominion, right, where we're free to use and abuse the planet, that's a really powerful core to so many people's worldviews, and it's certainly what a lot of Christ followers have been taught to think. But you're making the case that there's plenty in Scripture that does not support that illusion. But how does one become disillusioned? Besides reading mm. your book, of course, <laughs> I uh, wonder how how is it that we can seek to know what is true or seek to know what is alternative to these stories that have become so dominant and gotten us into trouble?
1: Absolutely. That's a key question for me. And the truth is that there's very, very, very little in the Hebrew Bible that can be leveraged toward that dominionism. And we have just latched on to those two or three verses and made them the scriptural core of, really, of capitalism as well, but within Christianity too. And so for me, religion is always about rereading. In fact, the word religion goes back to Latin roots that mean something like reconnecting or rereading, or maybe even both. And I think religion is always interpretation. It's never about just receiving traditions or doctrines or practices or whatever and sort of passively receiving and adhering to them. It's about receiving these inherited traditions and rereading them and reinterpreting them on new horizons of meaning. Religion is always about meaning-making. Ideally, it's about meaning-making in community. It's about connecting with one another, connecting with our traditions, connecting with our current horizon of meaning, and trying to put these together in creative ways. Religion should be creative, meaning-making work. And I think that's what we see when we read Biblical traditions as meaning making projects. The Bible doesn't all say one thing. The Bible is arguing with itself all the time. We can talk about examples of that if you like, but I do talk more about that in the book. But I think it's really important for us to, as you said, alienate ourselves from what we think we know about the Bible in order to rediscover it as something not modern, not Western frankly not even christian even though it's a resource for christian tradition and christian interpretation but to really estrange ourselves from it enough to rediscover it as really wonderfully and fascinatingly foreign and weird and surprising
0: yeah i want to pick up on something you just said about this idea of community being part of that process i think that when you talk about restoring right or Learning to read, really, is what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Learning to read the Bible yeah. for what it is rather than what we want it to be. But community mm-hmm. seems to be important, both perhaps to give us courage to do that, mm-hmm. but also mm-hmm. because, as you say, that creative process has a lot to do with thinking in common with others. Would you say that's true, this idea of community being at the heart of the process?
1: Absolutely. I think that, you know, there are no individual hero warriors in this movement And I think in many ways, religion, Christian religious tradition and others can help us with models of what it means to be a community working together in that meaning-making process, in that work of alleviating injustice, fighting injustice and alleviating unnecessary suffering. I think we have resources, not just in Christianity, but in other religious traditions that can help us with this work. And that's a big part of what I want to try to say in the book, both in terms of scriptures and ideas and theologies and so forth, but also in terms of ritual practices. Religion has been the place where humans deal with the deeper stuff of mortality and death and birth and find language to grieve and find language to hope. For me, personally i am a christian and in terms of resources as a biblical scholar i'm powerfully drawn to the psalms of lament which i think provide us language for grief and for facing reality in very powerful raw poetic ways i'm drawn to the prophets which, for me, offer different poetic ways of imagining alternative realities and also ways to break through our denial, which they're so often trying to do over against what we might call Israelite exceptionalism in the Bible. And in terms of liturgy and religious practice, my favorite liturgy, my favorite religious day in the Christian liturgical calendar is Ash Wednesday, which is the beginning of the season of Lent that then ends with Holy Week and Good Friday and Easter. And on Ash Wednesday, we go forward and the minister or the priest takes ashes that were made from the previous year's Palm Sunday palm fronds. And she, with her thumb, draws a cross on your forehead and says, remember that you are dust and that to dust you shall return. Now that's Genesis 2. That's the story we were just talking about. You come from it and you return to it. It's very powerful. It always has been very powerful for me as a Christian. And my favorite season is Lent, the sort of lengthening of time and space for deep reflection about not just our mortality and our finitude, but Related to that, our interdependence and interconnection with everything else, the beauty and wonder of our mortality, if you will. It doesn't have to be terrifying. And that's part of what religion helps us understand.
0: We've been in conversation with Timothy Beale about his provocative new book, When Time is Short Finding Our Way in the Anthropocene. I want to acknowledge the fact that some of you who listen to this podcast find Tim's ideas disturbing or even upsetting. Others of you might find some relief in the fact that Tim is putting into words some difficult ideas that on some level you've already come to believe. In truth, the Earth Keepers podcast is all about moving us out of our comfort zones so that we are provoked to think in new ways about our place on Earth and to change our actions accordingly. For that reason, I want to recommend this book to all our listeners. In fact, in the next two weeks, we'll be giving away copies of the book the first five new signups to the Circlewood mailing list. Just go to our website at circlewood.online and be sure to indicate that you're responding to the book offer on the podcast. For now, let's get back to our conversation with Timothy Beale. I think you make, uh, again, that good case for learning to read the Bible for what it is, and you use, for example, those two accounts of creation in Genesis as an example of contradiction. And I think your phrase was, you can't fail at what you didn't set out to do. And your point, (laughs) I think, was that the Bible is not setting out to give us a historical account of creation, but rather it's doing something different. What is that thing, that different thing it's trying to do? And then how does that affect our reading?
1: I would say, I love the phrase my teacher, Walter Brueggemann, uses to talk about creation stories he says they are about doxological imagination a kind of imaginative offering imaginative ways of seeing ourselves and our world and god in relation to one another and the Bible will do that one way, and then it'll do that another way. As we see, just, just anyone listening who is not sure about that, just read the first two chapters of Genesis. They do not match up. They do not sync up in all kinds of ways. And we can't think that all of the different hands and all of the different people who have been part of the history of this literature missed that and accidentally ended up with two creation stories that don't sync up right there at the beginning. But there are others throughout the Bible, too. There's a beautiful creation story summarized, really, in the divine speech from the whirlwind in the book of Job. A very different way of imagining the world's beginnings that really opens up space for us to think about The role of chaos and disorder and disorientation in creation, and the ways in which new creative possibilities emerge out of the chaotic deep, and even something that feels very violent and disorienting to that. And so, yes, I think this is poetic language. This is that it's telling stories and singing songs in ways that can open up for us different ways of seeing ourselves and our world.
0: So many would point to the misreadings of the Bible and the teachings of the church, historically speaking, as part of the problem that we're in today, whether or not we're Christ's followers, we live in a world that has been shaped by that ethos of, of domination. So, you know, if one agrees that the church is, complicit in bringing that about, in entrenching that worldview. I'm wondering if you think that, by implication, the Church also is responsible or has the capacity to lead us to a different place, to a different understanding.
1: Yes, absolutely. I do believe that that there is a responsibility there, and I think a necessity there, that if religion has had a big part to play in getting us into this mess it needs to have a big part to play in helping us find a way through or out of it and that's the challenge for those of us who are part of religious communities is where are the places where we can engage and can become part of these larger conversations because they can't just be inside the church or within the church or within religious communities they have to be Public facing and open facing towards those other communities of environmental activists that are out there. And part of that is really maybe leading with facing that reality that we've helped to create and grieving for that reality that we have helped to create. That we're not going to get to hope and we're not going to have a voice in those larger conversations unless we can also fully acknowledge the ways in which we and our traditions are implicated in the problems that we're facing. That's back to this theme of hope, which is so important to me in the book. A lot of, not a lot, but some folks, when I give them my elevator speeches about what the book is about, will say something like, well, I just choose to be an optimist. And what I hear in that, I've thought a lot about that. That's an interesting response to what I'm saying, but what is going on there, it's almost like choosing not to think about the reality and the grief work that needs to be done and just sort of skipping over that and hoping for the best, if you will. And I don't think hoping for the best is real hope. I really do believe, and I talk about this a lot in the book and in relation to a lot of injustice that we have seen, especially maybe over the last two years during COVID. And I think that there really is no true hope without breaking through the ideology and facing reality, breaking through the denial and grieving, and then we can get to hope. I think that optimism is shallow and cheap. And I think optimism Easily slips into despair when things don't, and doomerism, if you will. Whereas, if optimism is shallow and cheap, then hope is deep and costly. It's lasting and it is sustainable, but it is hard work, and it's work that we have to do together in community.
0: Yeah, as you're speaking, I'm trying to think of parallels, right? To get my mind around what you're saying. Say, I were to say, as a white male. I'm not a racist. I don't see color, right? I see everyone mm-hmm. as equal. Well, that's a great mm-hmm. sentiment, but it doesn't do what you're saying we need to do, and that is no face the grief, face the complicity. Right. Even though I may not do overt acts of racism day to day, there is a way in which, mm-hmm. as a white male, mm-hmm. I'm responsible, and responsible, I think, not just to try to enter into the suffering of mm-hmm. African-American folks, But even to repent of that Mm -hmm. in some way, do you think that there's something to that, that facing truth is grieving and also even repenting for some of us?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And there are so many ways in which that human exceptionalism, especially in the West, maybe unfolds in terms of European exceptionalism. White exceptionalism, American exceptionalism, male exceptionalism. And we are implicated in those systems of exceptionalism, whether we are consciously promoting them or not. And you and I benefit from them. Yeah. And I absolutely agree that we have to face that reality. In fact, the denial, I don't see color, is driven by that ideology of white exceptionalism. It presumes that whiteness is the norm and unfolds from there. And I agree. I think that part of the work for us on the horizon of a finite human future, whether that's a thousand years or a hundred years or whatever, that part of the work for us to do, just like with someone who is looking at a finite future for her himself in terms of a terminal illness or something, is to work on relationships and repairing relationships. And I mean, when I say repairing relationships, to also allude to reparations. I think that the kinds of repentance and forgiveness and repair and transformative and reparative justice work that needs to be done is something that should be a high priority for us as environmental activists, looking at a finite human future, whether we have a day or a thousands of years. That's the work that needs to be done. And so I completely agree with you that that is part of the work of facing reality, breaking through that ideology, breaking through that denial and grieving the harm that's there in order to do something hopeful that is about repair and about transformation.
0: So I had the interesting experience of trying to summarize really the essence of your book by text, to uh, my good friend, Eric. <laughs> and I kind of gave him the synopsis as I uh, understood it. And he's a black man. And his response kind of humbled me and made me realize that my reading, even of your book, was a bit ethnocentric. Because mm-hmm. he said that, and I'll quote him here, leaving the earth to become pure and viewing oneself as an exceptional being is a whiteness challenge. I've felt that because my skin is the color of the earth, it has been perceived as dirty and undesirable." So exceptionalism needs a darker being to project disgust onto in order to feel elevated. I just had to go outside and spend time sitting there in the rain just feeling what he was saying, feeling the pain of it even, but also even on some level repenting a bit about my assumption that what we're saying about exceptionalism applies to everyone equally, and that's just so not the case. I'm wondering if you- You agree with him that in some ways, exceptionalism in that conversation can be a whiteness issue.
1: Yeah, I agree completely with that. I think that, yes, exceptionalism unfolds from human exceptionalism in general into Christian, European, American, white, and let's include male exceptionalism there. and that all of those are sort of implicated in this. There are levels of exceptionalism and rings of exceptionalism in some ways. And a lot of the work that we need to do is in unpacking those and dealing with those and facing the white racism and patriarchal androcentrism that drives so much of this. And in the book, I try to look back at some of the beginnings of that white exceptionalism and European exceptionalism in the early modern period where there was this sort of emerging definition of the human over against, contrasted against, and this was a European white male human contrasted against the brown and black humans in other parts of the world and the indigenous humans in other parts of the world. There was this denigration of these other cultures that, in many ways, were much more connected and interdependent with their natural environments, denigrating those as, quote-unquote, primitive, and even not quite human. And that really justified what scholars call war capitalism. We used to call it early capitalism, some other term for early capitalism, but war capitalism, which really funded all of the later industrial capitalism in Europe by going and extracting land and labor and life from these other continents. And so this is deep, deep in us. And it's certainly in the American context, American exceptionalism and white exceptionalism are really absolutely entangled and they implicate one another.
0: Well, in your writing, you certainly don't assume that all cultures are complicit in maintaining this harmful worldview that sets people against nature. In fact, you point to indigenous cultures as the source of new knowledge, new understanding, maybe humbler ways of living in a more interdependent way with nature. And that's actually one of the core values of this podcast, so I'm very Mm -hmm. interested in Mm -hmm. that. But practically speaking, how can we seek these corrective perspectives? Like, what is the stance that we take That is teachable and yet not appropriating what we can learn.
1: Yeah, really important question and something we should all be super careful about. And part of that is back to being humble, depending on what our own identity is, being humble and listening and learning rather than simply taking these perspectives and using them ourselves. I'm really drawn to many of the younger climate activists who are drawing from their own indigenous cultural backgrounds. Part of what I hope to do is to let their teaching of me help me open up some perspectives in the early roots of Jewish and Christian tradition in the Hebrew scriptures that can resonate with that and that can communicate with those other indigenous perspectives but i think there's a real need to be humble and to be listening and to be following the lead maybe especially of that younger generation so i think that's one piece of it for sure
0: i do know that it will be a struggle to truly understand the implications of looking at our own mortality as human beings or even the ending of a species to contemplate that, I think there's gonna be resistance. I feel it in myself even. And the fear of course is to lose hope when one looks at humankind in that perspective. However, this book's relationship to the idea of hope is more complicated than that. Not to be too reductive, but I might say that you argue against a certain kind of hope and maybe that's where optimism comes in and really call some kinds of hope a false hope based on illusion. But I wonder if you could comment on that, but also talk about what this other way of hoping entails.
1: Yeah, I'm kind of blown away sometimes by this idea that if hope doesn't lead to something that lasts forever, it's not really hope. I honestly don't personally understand that, that hope is only hope in perpetuity. It doesn't resonate for me, but I recognize that for a lot of people, That's the only kind of hope there is. If it isn't on the horizon of an infinite future, then it's not really hope. That does feel like false hope to me. I don't understand how any of us as human beings can need hope to be forever. And I guess for me, Forrest, hope has to do with meaning. It has to do with connection. It has to do with quality over quantity. It has to do with thriving. And we can do that work no matter how much time we have. And we should be, whether we have a generation or seven generations or even more. What matters most when time is short is always what matters most. Connection, meaning, thriving.
0: This is a strange image, but as you're speaking, I have in my imagination, I'm seeing the sweet peas, flowers that I just planted about a week ago, and they've come Mm -hmm. up, they're about a couple inches high, and they're ephemeral in the sense that they live a season, but when they live, they just really live. They're Uh, joyful, mm -hmm. really, in the way Mm -hmm. that they climb up the fence and then just Mm -hmm. bend themselves, producing gorgeous flowers, as many as they can, and if you pick the flowers, they'll produce even more. It's just their nature is to just sort of live in joy and worship Mm -hmm. almost. And it, mm. that's sort of the feeling I'm getting when you're talking about mm. the idea that hope doesn't need to be attached to something eternal. That There yeah. are ways of hoping that are more time-bound, more mm-hmm. nature-bound, mm-hmm. really, because nature is like that.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's beautiful. I, thank you for that, for sharing that. Yes, and in fact, I think it's our disconnection from nature and from those processes that you're describing that have led to this kind of denial of a finite, thriving and joy, if you will, to describe what your sweet peas are doing. And I was just reading that, that beautiful book, Braiding Sweet Grass, and she talks about the strawberries in a very similar way and how they operate according to an economy of the gift, as opposed to our capitalist exchange economy, and how her own Native American. Culture and community operates according to that same economy of the gift. So right there, between sweet peas and strawberries and learning from Native American communities, we have a lesson, right?
0: Absolutely, yeah. Well, my dad passed away recently, and yesterday was uh, his memorial service. All the family and friends were gathered. And one of my cousins, who was the same age as me, just came up to me and <laughs> point blank, asked the question, what now? Right? Because two of the four brothers of the family have passed on. And by that question, he meant we're assumed to become the older generation. And what do we do with that? And the way I took his question and the way I've continued to think about it is how then do I live the rest of my life with a sense of finitude? There is an impulse in me to want to not even look at that question. It's a little bit hard, a little bit sad, a little bit scary. But if I were to face mortality in that sense how would that impact the way i live and how i love
1: yeah i agree and that's the work that we all have to do sometimes we only arrive at that question when we're looking at a diagnosis or a prognosis but maybe we can live into that sooner and more deeply the mary oliver poem i forget exactly what the line is but something to the effect of you know what will you do with this one Precious life and I think that's that's the question for all of us.
0: We've been in conversation with Timothy Beale about his new book, When Time is Short, Finding Our Way in the Anthropocene. Remember, we're offering a free copy of the book to the first five people who sign up for the Circlewood mailing list for the first time. If you appreciate this podcast and want to help us expand its global reach, please show your support by subscribing. Just go to whatever platform you listen to podcasts on and hit the subscribe or follow button for the Earth Keepers podcast. I'm Forrest Ginsley, your podcast host. Our executive producer is James Amadon. Our producer is Dave Ulfers. Timothy Connor is our editor and Forrest Reed is the creator of our original music. Our research assistant is Rochelle Nordman and Jessalyn Gentry is our social media director. Thank you, friends, for listening. And please join us for our next conversation on the Earth Keepers Podcast.